First reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 45, and it's on page 732 in the chair Bibles. That's page 732. Isaiah chapter 45, and we're reading verses 14 to 19. So verse 14. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and they will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God and Saviour of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from Revelation chapter 3 and beginning at the seventh verse. And this can be found on page 1235 in the Bibles. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you a door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on, my, on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A prayer as we stand. How blessed are they, and only they, who in his truth confide. Heavenly Father, it is our prayer this morning that you would teach us truth through your word, 
And we would be found to be those who confide in it and thereby find great blessing. Amen. Please do be seated. Well, uh, Happy New Year to you. And uh, we find ourselves returning to our Revelation series, working through these short letters, punchy letters, to these uh, early churches. And we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 and onwards. Verse 8. I know, says the Lord Jesus Christ to the church in Philadelphia, I know that you have little strength. Jesus Christ was writing to every faithful church down the ages, including the Philadelphian church. And he says, I know that you are weak. And he's right. I wonder if you know that he's right when he says to St. Michael's Chester Square, I know that you are weak this morning. It's my first heading if you're taking notes. Christ knows the church's weakness. Stephen Crabb, you may have come across him. He's the Secretary of State for Wales. He said this last month, December 2015. He said, Britain in 2015 is increasingly characterized by a creeping intolerance towards Christianity and towards religion more generally, which we should be deeply concerned about. And he's got a point. Who would have thought an innocuous advert outlining the Lord's Prayer would be banned from cinemas in this country? Or that the government would be mooting plans for an Ofsted-type group to be um, assessing Christian and church youth work going forward? Just the other day I was told of a good friend of mine banned from putting up posters advertising a Christian talk at his army barracks for fear it would offend people of other faiths. All this is weakening the church. In an article published this summer, The Spectator predicted the death of Christianity in Britain by 2067. So put that date in your diary. Thompson, who wrote the article, said, Anglicans in particular are abandoning their faith at a rate that in more ways than one defies belief. According to the British Social Attitude Surveys, he says, their numbers, our numbers, fell from 40% of the population in 1983 to 29% in 2004 to 17% last year. But the thing is, it's not just persecution from without which is hurting the church, it's persecution from within. Not just secularism outside these walls, but secularization within the church, I want to suggest. Last year, I was at an Anglican training event where it was suggested that if one insisted on preaching, one really shouldn't preach for more than six minutes. I read just the other day an article written by an Anglican bishop uh, suggesting that um, we clergy shouldn't preach at all at Christmas events. Uh, There are strong movements within the church to embrace progressive, pluralist, secularist culture at every turn and abandon the Bible's teaching. In the words of the end of verse 8 in our passage, many today, therefore, are dropping Christ's word and denying his name. Uh, There's much to be encouraged about in the work of St. Michael's Chester Square. Don't get me wrong. I see real spiritual life here. Delight in that. But we need to recognize that in real terms, we are weak 
And Jesus knows that. I know that you have little strength. Friends, we are a small fish in an increasingly unfriendly pond. And Jesus knows that. The church in Philadelphia were in the same situation. We don't know much about their particular weakness. It may well have been material, partly. Uh, There were shaky economic times just preceding the writing of this letter, apparently. But it was certainly spiritual in part. Did you notice uh, it was largely caused by the persecution they were experiencing from establishment religion, verse 9. That is why the church there had cause to endure and endure patiently, verse 10. And we'll get on to what effect that persecution was having on them in just a moment. But as we begin, I just want us to see that the church is weak, and that's okay. The church is weak, and that is okay. Did you see in in this letter, there is not one single rebuke in the letter, Many of these letters have rebukes, and regulars will recognize that from previous weeks, but this one is one of two which contains only encouragement. So Jesus knows the church's weakness, and it doesn't bother him. He says, I know that you have little strength, and that's okay. Sure, he encourages them to stay faithful, to hold on to him and to his teaching, but it's okay to be weak. Of course, we may long, I long to have a church which is more influential in the public square, which is more well-respected, which is more popular. But, you know, often Christ doesn't seem to want to work that way. He, he loves us to be aware of our weaknesses so that we discover his grace is sufficient for us in those weaknesses. Faithfulness is more important than strength. Christ knows the church's weakness. Secondly, Christ knows the church's worry. Notice what form the Jewish persecution of the church was taking. Have a look down, if you would, at verse 9. They seem to have been claiming that the church were not the true people of God. That they, in the synagogue, were the beloved of the Lord, and they were saying, if we are God's people, then I don't get it. Who are you? If we are God's people, the people God bestows blessing upon, then who are you, sorry? I don't think we've met. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. It's that kind of sentiment, spiritually speaking. And we need to feel the full force of this accusation. They were saying that God's adoption papers for his people, his children on earth, had got mixed up. And somehow these people called the church thought they had been adopted into God's family, but they were saying, no, there's been some mistake. I'm afraid you need to get out of the family home. The adoption papers belong to us. God couldn't care less about you. He cares about us, they were saying. And my guess is that if we had been church members in Philadelphia, we would have listened to those accusations and looked about at our weak gathering and thought, hmm, Maybe you've got a point. I mean, after all, if God really were for us, if God were on our side, then wouldn't we be stronger? Wouldn't we be more impressive? Wouldn't we have more strength? Wouldn't we be less weak? Have we backed the wrong horse, so to speak? And so the temptation for them, end of verse 8, was to drop Christ's word and deny Christ's name. It's very shocking, isn't it? Synagogue of Satan. 
I hope that shocked you as Nick read those words. And it's a formulation of words designed to shock. Jesus uses it because here the synagogue is doing what Satan has always done. Do you remember Satan's uh, title? He's the accuser. And he is an absolute pro when it comes to undermining Christian assurance in God's love. That's what he does best. It's what he did in the Garden of Eden. It's what he tried to do with Job. It's what he does with us again and again. How can you say that God is on your side at St. Michael's Chester Square? Look how many spare seats there are in church on a Sunday. You're so weak. Look how small your alpha courses are. I know people are becoming Christians, but it's really small numbers coming. Look how small a gift set are represented by the people amongst you. Look at your silly curate preaching, trying his best. It's what Satan does best. He's the accuser. And I think he works the same way today. I think increasingly the established church of our country can make life hard for us. Uh, See what you think. This is the process, I think, that's at work. In order for the established church to remain established, we have to agree with the state on some of the big issues of our day. Uh, Don't rock the boat, says the state to us, and you can keep your seat at the table. Uh, You can keep your voice in the public square. You can keep your bishops in the House of Lords. But if you rock the boat too much, if you speak too counterculturally, well then, you'll lose your privileges. And so the choice we are left with is this, and I'm going to overstate it to make the point. Either be non-offensive, the cultural chameleon church, which merely endorses secular pluralism, or be the countercultural, sometimes offensive, non-established church. The choice is increasingly between state privilege and faithfulness to the radical person and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ found in the pages of Scripture. And so increasingly, I think we have a division in the Church of England between what we might call the established, non-offensive church, toes the party line for the most part, and what we might call the fruitcake church. Now, the fruitcake church is the church which really believes Jesus and his teaching really believes that when we pray, there are answers and the situation changes, really believes that people can be healed by God's grace, really believes that Jesus' ethics are the best way to live, that really believe that conversion is a wonderful thing to be prayed for and celebrated, that really believes that Jesus physically rose from the dead. That's the fruitcake church. And can I say that's us? And so increasingly, people are choosing between the non-offensive established church, which believes very little, and the fruitcake church. That is the choice we have. And can I say increasingly we are going to come under fire from liberal parties in the established church to tow their party line and get with their progressive program. And if we don't, well, what will they do? They will distance themselves from us and accuse us of being extremist, fundamentalist, and dogmatic. And they'll say, if we are God's people... I don't get it. Who are you? And my guess is that it will be tempting to listen to those accusations and look around St. Michael's 
and see our weak gathering of people and, and think, have we backed the wrong horse here? I mean, if God really were on our side, wouldn't we be stronger, more impressive, more people filling the seats on a Sunday? Maybe they're right. And so the temptation, end of verse 8, creeps in to drop Christ's word and deny his name, which is making us so weak, it creeps in. And Christ knows the church's weakness and he knows the church's worry. But thirdly, Christ gives the church her task. This is verse 11, if you'd look down. Hold on to what you have so that no one may take your crown. I wonder if you've had that experience. I'm sure we all have, where something in particular is so hard that all we can do, all we can do is hold on. That is all we can do. I've had that in triathlons before, endurance, sport. And at the beginning of the race, it's all easy joy. And you think, this is just such a cinch, you know. And the, the miles are clipping by and the hills are just being ticked off and the pedal strokes come easily. And I'm filled with joy and glucose and all the energy I need. But then, as they say, you hit the wall. And if you've ever done a race like that, you know what that feels. And, and your legs are suddenly led and your head drops and the headwind seems stronger, and the hills come around more frequently, and you think, what on earth am I doing? I chose to do this. You hit the wall. And at those moments, what one's supporters cry from the sidelines make all the difference. I remember one race in particular, I'd hit multiple walls. Katie will know which race I'm talking about. It was a hard experience. And, and what, her, what she was shouting from the sidelines and what the family and friends were shouting was not... Come on, John, go faster or put a sprint in. Or I'd have had a sense of humor failure if they'd said that. But what they were saying was, hold on. Just hang in there. Put one more step in front of the other. Take one more pedal stroke and the finish line comes closer with every step, every pedal stroke. Hold on. And it was good advice because it was realistic. I felt I could do that. And here the church has hit the wall They've been through the pain barrier and beyond, enduring patiently for mile after mile. They feel they can't take any more. I want to throw in the towel. For some reason, I chose to do this when I became a Christian. How ridiculous. And what Jesus is shouting from the sidelines here is realistic, and he says, hold on. Hang on in there. Just take one more step. Keep going one more week. Verse 8, just keep trusting and obeying my commands living my way. Can you do that? Keep not denying my name. This is the task for the church. And I want to speak to those of us who feel like we've just hit the wall spiritually. I wonder if that's you. Maybe for you it's as colleagues and friends have moved increasingly away from biblical morality and way of thinking that you just feel outgunned and outnumbered. You've stayed firm, you've stayed still, you've stood on the Bible's teaching, but you're fed up with being outgunned in arguments and discussions around the water cooler and down the pub and in the coffee shop with the other mothers from school, and, and you feel small. You feel like a very small fish in an increasingly unfriendly pond. You feel weak. And honestly, you find yourself questioning, is it worth it? And Jesus says to you, I don't ask any more of you than this. Hold on. 
Can you put one foot in front of another this week and live my way following my commands this week? Can you cope with one more week? Can you countenance that? Hold on. Maybe for you, the the message of liberalism in the established church is it's doubly hard to resist. This is me, by the way. Not only do we disagree with what they're saying, but we deeply want to agree with what they're saying. It would be easier. Oh, how we want to agree with them. Their message holds a deep attraction for us. Perhaps we're just tired of our personal struggle to live Christ's way, living all out for him in the area of sexuality or our money or our time, making sure we're back for church on a, on a Sunday. And we're just really struggling. And, and they are saying something to us which sounds to us like a siren song. It sounds so attractive, but we know it will destroy our faith. And they are saying, you can keep on going as a Christian without the radical Christ. Take Christ out of Christianity. You can keep being one of the gang. I want to believe them. It would be so much easier. I don't know what it is for you. It could be you've just got a a family member or a friend who's living radically in the other direction from Christ in their living And it's so painful still loving them but disagreeing with them fundamentally. I find that so hard. And I would prefer just to chuck my Christian creed in the bin and just find it a lot easier with them. I want to believe the siren song of the liberal church, but I can't. And Jesus says to us, hold on. Can you take one more step with me? Can you give yourself to following me one more week? Can you do that? So Christ gives the church her task. And finally, he gives the church future treasure. And this is the bit I've been looking forward to preaching for the last 15 minutes. Verse 7. These are the words of him who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Uh, Keys are extraordinary things, aren't they? I googled it. Apparently, the average monetary value of a key is three pounds sterling. But of course, when we lose them, we panic. We call the police. We go hot and cold. Their value far outstrips that. When someone gives us a key, we tell our friends about it, post it on Facebook. We're delighted because keys outstrip their monetary value. They open greater things to us and close greater things to us. Therefore, to lose a key or be given one is a much bigger and much worse thing than we might have once thought. To have a key is to have privilege and power. If you'll excuse the pun, the key thing is to work out whose key it is. If you find the key of John Ash, that's me, then you have access to an average house and an average car. You're more than welcome. If we were to find the key of Queen Elizabeth, it would be quite a different situation. Her house is just down the road and it's quite nice. But did you notice whose key Jesus has here? Verse 7, who holds the key of David. David. That is not David Jones or David Simpson. This is King David from the Old Testament, King David. And the thing about kings is that kings tend to have kingdoms. And therefore, to find a king's key is to have access to something really rather wonderful. 
their kingdom. David's kingdom was a particularly lavish, glamorous, rich, wealthy kingdom, we are told in the Old Testament. And what is Jesus going to do with this set of keys? Well, verse 7, he's going to open the kingdom of heaven to some people and shut it to others. There is no other set of keys to this kingdom front door. There's no set of neighbors to the kingdom who have a spare. There's no key safe outside which we could access. He is the only key holder to this kingdom, the only one that matters. And therefore, if he shuts the door to me, no one can open it to me. There's no other spiritual locksmith, no other philosophy or worldview or philanthropic lifestyle or religion that can open this door. And get this, if he opens the door to me, then nobody can shut it. Isn't that wonderful as we begin 2016? Verse 8, this is what Jesus says to us, I've placed before you an, and this is an important word next, an open door and one that no one can shut. He says, come on into my kingdom. It's wide open for you, St. Michael's Chester Square. And what's in his kingdom? Not the trials of Judgment Day in verse 10, but there's treasure. And boy, is there treasure. Just as we close, I want us to feast our eyes on some of this treasure. They're all in verse 12. The one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, the thing about pillars, if you've ever done a redesign of a a house, is that they are absolutely key, a bit like RSJs. They're not dispensable because they're load-carrying. And therefore, the thing about pillars here is that they are permanent. They're not an optional feature. One doesn't get rid of a pillar. I dread to think what would happen if we got rid of these. And the point, therefore, if we are a pillar in God's temple is we are permanent fixtures with him. It is as if we have a season ticket with God. No one is going to chuck us out. Isn't that wonderful? But second, pillars have a purpose. They're structural. They do things. These pillars are working hard right now. They have done for hundreds of years. And it's a little clue that we are going to have a real purpose in God's kingdom. We're going to be working with him, ruling the new creation with Jesus Christ. We'll be pillars. But let's read on. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And I'll also write on them my new name. So what's all this business about names? I think it's all about personal intimacy between us and God. You know, the better you know someone, the more of their contact details you have. You know, you you go from having their business card to their email address, their home address, then finally their phone number. The, The more contact details, the better you know them. And Jesus here is saying that in his kingdom, God is saying, here's all my details. He's saying, call me anytime. It speaks about names here. With Katie and me, to start with, I only knew her initials and her surname from an address list. And then she introduced herself to me, and I found out she preferred to be called Katie and not Catherine. And later I found out what her middle A initial stood for, Anne. And then a few years later we got married, and she got a new name, Ash. And now we call each other all sorts of embarrassing things like Darling. But you know, the better you know someone, the more names you have for them. It's all about personal intimacy. And when Jesus opens the kingdom door to us on that day, we will know him better 
than besotted lovers know one another. So as I close, we are weak as a church, and that's okay. Jesus knows our worry that our weakness is because God doesn't really love us. He assures us that he does. And he gives us a realistic task. He says, hold on. Just hold on to me and on to my teaching. Keep your eyes on that finish line, that open door, and feast your eyes on the treasure that awaits. Permanence in the presence of God, purpose in the presence of God, and personal intimacy with him. Shall we pray? I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Heavenly Father, we pray at the start of this 2016 that this year for us as individuals and as a church would be a victorious year, a year of holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. We confess our weakness freely to you. We're not ashamed of it. You know it. You don't condemn us for it. And we just pray that we'd be faithful above all this year. For Jesus' namesake, amen.